All right, everybody. It does feel like such an intrusion to interrupt y'all's saying what up to each other. I, f I always feel a little bad about it, but knock it off. We gotta go. Happy New Year's, everyone. My name is Ian. Anyone who doesn't know who I am, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Dora Hope. Um, why don't you open up your Bibles? We're gonna do a little side sermon today and take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 22. And pull up uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. And as, you, as you're finding that in your Bibles, uh, if you don't have a Bible today, there should be one in the pew directly in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and use it. Keep it if you want, if you don't have one. Um, I, have to, I have to make a confession. I talked really big and bold. I made a big stink about it to Evan, and I, I was bragging about how tough I was, and being a, a father of an infant wasn't going to keep me down. And I definitely went to bed before midnight last night for the first time in my adult life. And what was really embarrassing is that it was like at 11.20. It was between 11 and midnight. And I, just, I, just, I just didn't care. I just gave up. But somebody was partying so hard that we didn't sleep anyway. Somebody was, was doing the mortar shells and the firecrackers and the 357 magnums or whatever they were doing. And so right on. You know what? Someone's got to keep the candle burning. So I'm glad to see you're all here. You're the faith of you who made it. New Year's Day. Here we are. So if you got your Bibles open to 1 Samuel... In chapter 22, let's read the first two verses together. Follow along with me. So 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, and they went down there to meet him. And then everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter of soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Bow your heads with me just one more, one more time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the guidance that it brings. Thank you for the truth that it reveals. And Lord, we are here this morning to listen to what it is that you have to say and what it is that you have to teach. And so I pray that you would prepare hearts this morning uh, to hear things that maybe, maybe they, don't need, they don't understand or know that they, that they need to hear. I pray that, that ears would be attentive and that attention would be would be given to what it is that you have to give us in your word today. I pray for my own fallen and feeble tongue that my opinions and preferences would not uh, pervert your scriptures, but only what it is that you would have your people to hear, only what it is that's written in your holy scriptures would be preached today. We're here to meet with you, King Jesus. So speak, please, in your name we pray, amen. So this, this text, uh, admittedly, it's a little short and can, can feel a little bit random uh, and, and maybe even out of place. We're not given a whole lot of context of what's going on, but those were the two verses I was, I was assigned, so that's what we got to do. But what, I, what I'd like, to, what I'd like to, to show us in the course of the next 40 minutes or so is, is two main, main things. Because this is God's word and because it's written by God the Spirit, and because the Bible is one unified book of truth, you could, you could go a hundred different ways with, with this text. And it's, and it's really tempting and even sometimes difficult as a preacher to not do that. But what I, what I want to limit us, our focus to this morning is the reality of the entire cosmos. Every single human being ever born on planet Earth and all of creation, all of, all of the cosmos, all of the universes, all of the galaxies, everything that God has created, I want to I consider that for a moment. And then I also want to consider Christians specifically, people who are in Christ, who have been born again, who have put their faith and their trust in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the cosmos and the Christian. And then we'll fill in in between. But those are the, the two focal points that, that, I, that I want us to pay attention to as we go through this text. So this is the life of David. This is 1 Samuel. Uh, the story of David has been, has been going on in Scripture for some time. And you can tell just from these first two verses here that it's, it's very obvious that something's not quite right. Things are not looking good for David. There's the word departed and escaped, and he's in this cave. And if you know anything about the life of David, this seems a little bit odd because things for David in the beginning of his story in Scripture are actually going very well. Things are 
uh, they're inspiring. And there's often times that we're even told, like, be like King David. Even if, even if you're the runt of the litter, your day may come. Success and triumph and victory, it might be yours. You have to go out there and slay your, slay your Goliaths and conquer those things that are overpowering you. Be like David or at least be like one of his mighty men. You know, there's this big optimistic bent that David has in Scripture. But here, things aren't, aren't going so well. And so I just want to take a few minutes to catch us up to what's taken place. In 1 Samuel 16, David is the youngest most insignificant of his brothers. The prophet Samuel comes and says there's going to be a new king and you, Jesse, David's dad, you, Jesse, have a son who the Lord has told me is going to be king and so I need to see them all one by one. And David's not even invited to the party. King Saul is at this time ruling over Israel and the mantle has been taken from him and there's going to be a replacement and Samuel comes and, and he and he. he, he he investigates all of David's brothers to come to, day, to come to the end and go, none of these guys are it. And they're big and tall and handsome and they seem on paper like they have all the credentials and, and the resume. And the Lord says, I do not look at the outside like you do, I look at the inside. And so Samuel asks Jesse, do you have another son? And his dad goes, well, yeah, there, you know, there's David, he's the runt, he's out there with the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him in. And, and David is anointed king. Things are going very well for David. He was just a little dude doing his job diligently. And then one day the prophet came and said, you are the anointed of God. You will be the king of Israel. And so he went from being on, in, the, in the background and um, not noteworthy and, and um, insignificant to suddenly being a very prominent figure. His company changes very quickly. He's in Chapter 16 into chapter 17, he is now in the company no longer of sheep, but of Saul, King Saul himself. He's, he's King Saul's musician, his personal musician, who plays in his private quarters for him. He becomes best friends with Saul's son. Things are taking shape very quickly and very dramatically. Things for David are going very well. And then to top it all off, he kills Goliath. Everybody knows that story. One of the most famous stories in all of, in all of Scripture the most unlikely, the smallest, the weakest, goes out there with some rocks and he takes down a Philistine who's nine feet, nine inches tall and becomes a hero overnight. So what changes? What happened? Everything's going so good and now our hero is hiding and hunted in a cave, fleeing for his own Life And in David's life, what, what happened, and, but there's a lesson to the cosmos, there's the lesson to all of humanity, to all creation that's, that's hidden here, but what happened in David's life specifically was that Saul got jealous. Sin entered in heavily in, into, David's, into David's story uh, in a way that I think is almost funny because it says in, in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel that David's coming back in to Jerusalem and the women are singing his praises. And if there's a way to get a guy jealous over another dude, that's the way to do it, right there. All the ladies of the land are singing his praises and they said, they said Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his 10,000s. And this made Saul mad. Saul became very angry for this saying and it was displeased in his eyes. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, but to me only a 1,000? What more can he have but the kingdom? And so from that day forward, Saul looked with suspicion on David. Jealousy entered in. And this progressed more and more and more. And from chapter 18 to chapter 20, there's 15 references to Saul either making an outright attempt on David's life, sticking him to the wall with his spear, or saying something about having him killed, trying to set up a situation where David will, will be murdered or will be, will, will be, there'll be mutiny against him. Someone will turn against him and have David killed. In chapter 20, Saul even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan was successful at hiding David. So this sin has entered in, this jealousy has entered in, and now our, the hero of the story is hiding in a cave after fleeing to the land of the Philistines. It says in verse 22 that he departed from there. Where's there? It was, the, it was Gath. It was the most prominent city of the Philistines. It's actually where Goliath was from. Things were so bad for David that he went into the, into the city behind enemy lines of his, enemy, of his enemies, the city of his enemies, to seek shelter and protection. And he, he, but they, they caught on to who he was, so he pretended to be mad. He started scribbling on the doors and drooling down his chin and acting crazy, so they, they threw him out. 
things aren't going good. Things are not going as expected. And for a story that started so optimistically and with so much power and so much blessing, it's, it's, it's fair as human beings to look at what's happening right now and going, what, what happened? How does this happen? And the, easy, the, the, the answer easily said is that this is the outworking of sin. Saul is now against David. He wants him killed and David is fleeing for his life and he ends up in this cave and this, this shouldn't be happening. This isn't the way that life is intended to go. But now what you have here is these two kingdoms represented by, by King David who hasn't yet taken the throne and the present king who has had the throne taken away from him but just it hasn't been worked out completely yet. There's these two kingdoms, King Saul and King David. And this, this is a picture, this, this brief moment. This, these two verses right here is a picture of the two actual kingdoms that are taught in all of scripture. So as random as this text may seem, pay attention because the, the, the deep reality here is not something that is sporadic or, or, or random, but this is a physical presentation of the truth of all of the cosmos and for Christians. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil the two, the biggest reality in the cosmos is this kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil and, and the battle that is, that is raging between them. Because God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the God of the cosmos. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of heavens and the earth. He created everything, and yet we're in this time in human history, in redemptive history, where there is this battle that is raging, and it is against the personality, the person of Satan himself. In John chapter 12, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. In John 16, again, he says the ruler of this world. First John 5:19, Jesus, it's, John writes there that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. A battle between these two kingdoms is existing and we see it play out in, in a small way, but in a powerful way between David and Saul here in this text. Ephesians 6, 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A battle between who Luke writes about Jesus in Acts chapter three, calls him the author of life, and who Hebrews two says, the one who has the power of death. Jesus, the author of life, and Satan, the one who has the power of death. There's a battle that is raging here. The serpent in Genesis and the seed of the woman. Remember what the father said to the serpent. He said, cursed are you for what you have done. From the seed of woman will come one who will crush your head and in the process you will bruise his heel. This is the battle that we are, this is the truth of the cosmos is that we are in the middle of this spiritual battle. It's not so much physical as much as it is a spiritual reality. It manifests in physical ways in trillions of different ways. Does the sin in this, in this battle and the power of Satan manifest? But here we see it manifesting in the lives of David and the lives of Saul. One last verse just to drive it home. Colossians 1 calls this the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son. This is a battle between life and death, between darkness and light, between good and evil, between heaven and hell, between flesh and spirit, between truth and falsehood. And this, this, this battle of kingdoms plays itself out all the way through scripture. Just briefly here, you see it happen in the Garden of Eden. The Lord God creates everything and it is perfect and Adam and Eve doesn't take long for them to go, you know what, I think that we can do this a better way. I think that we might know better, we might feel better, we might think better, we might even do better. And so I'm gonna listen to this talking snake and sin enters the world. We, we, we committed rebellion and mutiny against God. Sin entered the relationship. And then Adam and Eve all of a sudden have this problem where they don't know what the standard is because it's not God's standard anymore. Adam and Eve have eviscerated that, created their own standard, and now they realize they're naked and they don't know what the other person's capable of because they're not abiding by the rules of Yahweh anymore. And so sin enters the relationship. And because of that sin, human beings were cut off relationally from the creator who made them. And that is, in essence, the problem that we're dealing with throughout all of human history is that we have been cut off from the life source. We've been cut off from being in God's family relationally. And we have been trying to create our own kingdoms ever since. You see it in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. You see it in Daniel chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. There's the rising up of kingdoms and the slaying of kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this multi-layered statue of different colored metals and it gets destroyed by a rock. 
And Daniel interprets the dream and says, that's, that's kingdoms that are gonna come after you. You're going to be undone. In chapter four, he interprets another dream for Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're, you're really, the time is nigh. And Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. And we see in chapter five that the Persians come in and destroy Babylon. And then after the Persians, the Greeks. And after the Greeks, the Romans. And that takes us into the New Testament period. Blood and sword and shield and spear and javelin all through human history. This is the way that human kingdoms work. We get jealous, we pursue, and we have, we have people hiding, fleeing for their lives in a cave. But in Daniel chapter seven, there's hope. There's one like a son of man who will come and it says that his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. His dominion will be one that has no end. And all through scripture, we're waiting for the rightful king to come. Is it Jonah? No. Is it Moses? No. Is it Noah? It's not. Is it Abraham? It is not. All of these leaders, all of these patriarchs, all of these kings and all the rest, David himself, it's not him. It's not him, it, pointing to the king who is going to come, pointing to the one who is going to establish the right kingdom forever. And in, and in the gospels, the rightful king is born. Jesus comes to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's not what anyone expected, nor was his mission or the way that he went about accomplishing his mission one that anyone expected. He didn't ascend to political or military power but instead he was, a he was a homeless carpenter and a preacher from an insignificant town. He didn't seek the aristocrats and the leaders or the rich or the powerful, but he was found in the company of tax collectors, prostitutes, and thieves. He came, it says in Luke 19.10, the admission of Jesus himself, he came to seek and to save that which is lost, those that have been cut off from Father God those who are no longer in relationship and are now in peril of eternal hell. He came to save. He came to seek and to save those that are lost. Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, he was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And when asked why he kept company with sinners, he said, because it is not the well who need a physician, but it is the sick. He tells a parable in Luke 18 on this subject. of one who thought of himself as high and mighty. He says, two men went into the temple. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And he told this parable to some of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and so they viewed others with contempt. And so the parable goes, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, these swindlers and the unjust and the adulterers or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Bragging, bragging, and bragging, making a name for himself. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have achieved. But the tax collector, standing at some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this is the man who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So the lost, the sinners, the sick, the unrighteous, this is what sin has done to us, but this is who Jesus has come after. This, this lost, sick, sinner, this is who we are. The reality of the cosmos, the reality of every person ever born on earth is that we are born in sin. We are born separated from God relationally and we need a savior. We are lost, we are sick, we are sinners, we are unrighteous and that's not good news. And it's actually such bad news that there's many people in many churches who wear the name pastor or preacher that stand behind one of these things and won't re refuse to to preach on that. They refuse to say that. They don't say sin, death, hell, and punishment. They say uh, brokenness and you need some, some self-help. They dilute the truth because the truth is wildly unpopular, but you dilute the truth of sin, death, and hell, and punishment. You dilute the need for Jesus. You dilute the need for a savior, and I am unwilling to ever do that. We are sick and we are lost and we are unrighteous we are what Colossians 1 describes as alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil. The spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a terrifying verse. Psalms 53 says, there's none who are righteous. There is not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And that death is manifest in the physical, just like the clash of these two kingdoms. There's a clash of kingdoms in the cosmos, and there's a clash of kingdoms in this cave. Sin and death and hell and all these realities, they manifest in little ways and in big ways on earth every single day. The death is a, is a spiritual, eternal death. It's why Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. To seek and to save those who are not righteous. And so those who come to Jesus are ones who recognize that they need help. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, listen to this. This is the good news of, of, of our Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At this time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's the kingdom reference. There's the kingdom language. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. Skipping down a verse, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden and lost and sinners and sick and unrighteous. This is not what our culture tries to teach us. But listen to Jesus. Come to me all, all, all. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. 2,000 years ago when Jesus said these words in the flesh to this very moment and into the future. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Weary, heavy laden, lost, sick, sinner, and unrighteous. Happy New Year. The good news is good news infinitely because the bad news is such bad news. And as we'll see that we're, we're going to add just in a moment, we're going to add to this list the word condemned. That's the real, that's the real one. You want to be unpopular in Portland, you just go around telling people that. They don't like it, but they need to hear it because there's a Savior who came to save those who are lost. But if you don't know that you're lost, you're not going to know that you need a savior. So in love, if you're here this morning and you're not born again in Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you have not put your faith and trust in him for salvation, then you have reason to be distressed because you are in debt. That's the hard truth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse two, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter of soul gathered to David. That's everything that we just described. People who knew that they were distressed and in debt and discontented. Desperation drove them from one king to another. Desperation drove them from one kingdom to another. From Saul's rule and authority to David's rule and authority. They didn't get to the cave and then become distressed and in debt. They already were that. And so now if you are not a believer in Jesus, then you have to pay attention because this is what the Bible says is the truth of the entire cosmos, that we are born children of wrath and we have every reason. If you do not have Jesus Christ, you have every reason to be distressed because you are in debt and so you should be discontented. If you look around in the world, this kingdom, the, the kingdom of the US of A, the kingdom of planet Earth, does it not just speak for itself that things are falling apart, that things are not going well? Are you discontented? Are you tired of this? Are you in some way, shape, or form in debt? Does the, the state of things right now reveal to you that something is wrong and that maybe politics isn't gonna fix it? As good and helpful as philanthropy can be, it is impotent to fix our, our, our most true problem, which is separation from God. It is a world without God. It is being in the 
dominion of darkness, under the rule and authority of Satan, the king who we do not want to be under. In the world, non-believers, people who reject Jesus Christ, you need to be lovingly made aware of just how bad things are. Hell is forever. And the price into heaven is not one that you can pay, it's not one that you can earn, but it is a gift that is given. We are in debt because of sin. It's funny, John 3.16 is the most famous Bible verse. Everybody knows it by heart. Even people who don't go to church, don't have any faith in Jesus, somehow they they end up hearing John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But what's really intriguing, for God so loved the world, he sent his son. We love that, but we we stop there. We we, we stop to ask, well, why did he send it? We we don't really think about the perishing part. Or just two verses later, John 18, John, excuse me, John 3.18 continues on to say this, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. We are in debt because of sin. We're already condemned. And the religions that they sell you on TV that try to tell you that you can earn your way out and maybe your good will outweigh your bad, God says it's already been done. You've already been condemned. Ephesians chapter two, by nature, children of wrath. It's a terrifying reality. And if you find yourself suffocating in fear because of this, praise God, keep listening, don't tune out. That's good. It's a good thing to know realistically where we stand. So then we can know what Jesus has done for us because Jesus has paid the debt. Romans chapter eight, verses three and four. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You could, you could preach for a week straight on those few words alone right there. That means that the God who holds the sun in outer space and keeps it at a constant temperature, his standard for righteousness, which is perfection. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We can't do it. We can't do it, but that is the standard and God's not gonna budge on it. He will not shift or dilute his righteousness. And this is terrifying. This, this means that we cannot make it into heaven. We cannot earn it, we cannot buy it, we cannot coax our way in, we can't riddle our way in. We cannot do it, we need help. And Jesus going to the cross, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, becoming a man, God somehow mysteriously, the unchangeable God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, the Son came to earth and put on human flesh and lived a human life and never sinned in word, thought, or deed, but we're told in scripture that he was sinned in every conceivable way that humans can be tempted. But he did not sin. And that perfect righteousness that God requires, Jesus attained, and he was overqualified for death, so when he died on the cross, the devil had nothing with which he could hold him, so in that Overqualification, Jesus rose from the dead. The power of God and the power of his righteousness, Jesus rose from the dead. And that life that is not yours is offered to you. He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we need. Are we sinners? Yes and absolutely. Are we unrighteous? Yes and absolutely. Are we sick? Yes. Are we condemned? Yes. Is there hope? Absolutely, and it's in the name and no other name than Jesus Christ. God in the flesh come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to earth and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is the lost and the sick and the unrighteous that he's looking for. Those who admit that they're lost and that they're sick and that they need a savior because we cannot earn this on our own merit. We can only admit that we need a savior. Do you, are you here this morning? Has 2020 to 2022 beat you up? It beat a lot of people up. Did you go financially upside down? Did you lose somebody to COVID? Did something happen? Is, are you sick of the world? Did you have your hope in Trump? Or maybe you had your hope in Biden? Or maybe you had your hope in some other political leader that we haven't, that didn't get elected? 
And just time and time and time again, it's just the same old sorry routine. We're going to raise the Tower of Babel. We're going to have Babylon in millennium after millennium after millennium. Have, have we not figured it out yet, friends, that the problem is with us? And the problem is sin. And it's the very thing that Jesus came and defeated. And all that is required to entrance into his kingdom is to say, I am a sinner and I need help. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom where God's rule is, not, is no longer interfered with by sin and malevolence and lying and manipulation and bribes but where he has his rule incomplete. And it's not consummated yet. Jesus came and he started it. His Holy Spirit came down, enters inside human beings when we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and put our faith and our trust in him. And you have to put your faith and your trust in him, otherwise your belief in him is no different than the devil's. And I wish that someone had told me that when I was a kid. I wish that somebody had told me that when I was a young man because I thought, well, if I have this intellectual data and agree with it, then I'm good, then I'm saved. And I'm afraid, friends, that there are many people who have gone to hell because Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, there will be many who will come to me on the day of judgment and say, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he's gonna say, I do not know you. Maybe you had works, maybe you had intellect, maybe you had knowledge, but the Bible says in the book of James that even the devil and the demons believe and shudder. Friends, it's about an affectionate submission. Repenting isn't just admitting that you're wrong, it's saying I'm wrong and you're right and I want you, I'm yours. And the lifelong process that that takes, that's a whole other sermon. But what we're dealing with here this morning is the cosmic reality that there is a heaven and there is a hell, there is a God and there is a devil and if you have breath in your lungs today, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven and be safe and secure for all of eternity. All of eternity with Jesus and with his saints forever in peace and in joy. Revelation 21 describes that reality, that quality of life. It's not, just a, it's not just a length of time, it's also a quality of life. As a quality of life that is without sorrow, without tears, without pain, for these things have passed away. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I have one more verse for you. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot earn your way to God. Just admit that you need him and come to him in repentance from your sins and acknowledge that you need his saving grace. And do it today because you might be dead before the day's over. My dad died. He was, he was awake in the morning. He was dead before the end of the day. It happens like that. My friend Ben woke up on a Monday. He went to bed somewhere between 8 and 9 p.m. and he never woke up. You never know. And so I hope that you're listening. If you're here this morning and you're on the fence about this Jesus guy, if there's breath in your lungs, there's hope, but don't act like you have all the time in the world. My friend Ben, when he died, he was 37 years old. It was completely unexpected. 2 Corinthians 6, write that down, 2 Corinthians 6. In a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's, that's for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, today is the day of salvation. His grace is new every morning. You cannot send yourself out of his grace. If you think that you're too evil, too wicked, too broken, too lost, you're too distressed, you're too in debt, that's not true. Jesus' blood is more powerful than that. Put your faith and trust in him today. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, the second half of this verse is, is for you. That's the cosmos. The reality of the cave is, the, is these two kingdoms coming together in a clash. But listen to what Paul goes on to say. Put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But listen to this list. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and in hunger. Believers, saints, those of you who have put your faith savingly into Christ Jesus, do you feel in distress, in debt, and discontented? Do you feel like 
you're hiding in a cave with the king thinking, what happened? <laughs> this, this shouldn't be happening. Things were so good and now this? David was anointed king. He killed Goliath for Pete's sake. All of the ladies were singing about his milkshake, man. I mean, they were stoked on this dude. David was the hero. He was the man of the hour. He was on the front page of the magazine, and now he's hiding in a cave, hunted and scared, fleeing for his life. Christians, do you feel that way? Because you have every reason to hope and to endure and to trust and to even rejoice in this affliction. Because I don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't know and I can't know why one thing or another may be wrong in your life or in mine. I don't know why my dad got cancer and I don't know why that cancer took him. I don't know why my friend Ben died. I don't know why what the next thing that's gonna come. I, I don't know why I am burdened with insomnia my whole life. And then have to get up and, and, and speak in front of people and try to keep linear. It's not easy. I'm tired all the time. I don't know why, but I trust God. I trust his reasons, even if I don't know what they are, because he has proven himself absolutely trustworthy. And we have many people that we are in good company with throughout scripture. But the question is, do you, do you trust the one who is in control? Christian, do you, do you remember to trust Jesus? And I'd like to spend the rest of my time up here today reminding us of all the reasons why we can trust him because even when things are really brutal, A, he went through it, a lot of other people have gone through it too, and he's working good out of it. And I know sometimes that's the last thing that you want to hear and it's the hardest thing to believe, but just look at Jesus' life itself. We have reason to hope, we have reason to endure, and even to trust. Because Jesus himself went into the cave. He went into the abyss, he went into the darkness, actually, for real. He didn't feel like he was going into the darkness, he really did. He went into the discomfort, and he went into the uncertainty to save us. That was why, to seek and to save that which is lost. To pull us out, pull us out of sin, out of death, out of decay, so we can trust him. Joseph was in the pit. Joseph was in jail. Things did not go well for Joseph for a long time. And then in Genesis 50, 20, at the end of the book, he says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, he said, you meant it for evil, but Yahweh meant it for good. John the Baptist was in jail. And while he was there, he asked Jesus, if, are, are you really the one? You know, because I mean, John the Baptist was Jesus's half biological cousin. If somebody should have been given a, an, easy, an easy go of it, it should have been John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one Jesus himself said, of, of men born of women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist is in jail and he had that moment in distress, in debt, it discontented saying, really? In Matthew 11, he sends his disciples to Jesus and to ask him, are you really the one? Because things aren't looking good. It's looking kind of cave-like to me. And Jesus' response to him was, look at all the awesome things that are happening. And then you tell me. Jesus quotes from Isaiah. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Which is another way of saying those in distress, those in debt, and those who are discontent. The lepers, the deaf, the dead, the poor. Jesus came to liberate Remember that, John. I know things aren't going great for you right now, but remember, everyone's going through something. Job was stricken with illness and the death of his entire family, except for his wife, and if you know that story, she was not a very uplifting voice. He lost everything, all of his wealth, in just about one moment. It happened all very quickly, and yet in Job 23.10, he cried out and said, when he, that is when God, has tested me, I will shine forth as gold. Under the care of the true king, God himself, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Jesus Christ, the true king, the king which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. One day, the day of judgment, either as your savior and you'll be stoked or as your judge. Under the true king, 
There will be not one hurt in your life or a pain or a confusion that gets away without being used somehow graciously by mighty God. Do you believe that, friends? I know that you can't judge this based on your feelings because it doesn't feel like it's true. And when I watched my dad die one inch at a time, eaten alive by cancer, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel like God was working things out for the good, but the Bible told me so. And so I learned in that moment experientially to put God's word over my feelings. Do I believe my feelings or do I trust what God's word says? Because God's word says everything works for the good of those who love him. Even mortal cancer. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Nothing is wasted. No, not a tear not a disappointment, not a trauma, not a hurt. He is counting it all. And somehow in the mystery of his sovereignty and his power and his love and his mercy and his glory, he is weaving it all together to make you a kind of person that, he, that, he, that you want to be, even if you don't realize it. And he's, bringing, he's ushering you into a heaven that's gonna be all the sweeter for the sorrows that you suffered. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose. If you're suffering today, if you're hurting, write this verse down. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light and momentary affliction, that's this world, light and momentary. Some, for some people, light and momentary means that they're dead before their 10th birthday. Other people, you got 90 years of this, 100 years of this. Light and momentary, compared to an eternity, eons and eons and trillions of years, light and momentary affliction is preparing for us. That's an amazing statement. Actively preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. How bad do you hurt? There's a glory that's coming that is beyond your imagination. As we look not to the things that are seen but that are unseen, for what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And finally, Jesus Christ himself. There's Joseph, there's John the Baptist, there's Job, and then there's Jesus Christ himself. He was betrayed, he was sold out, he was beaten, he was mutilated, he was tortured, and he was killed. And in the middle of that process, he cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save the lost. And he knew what he was getting into. It's stated many times in scripture, Jesus predicted that he was going to die and then even after he died and rose again, his apostles said this was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It doesn't mean that you who put him to death are getting away with it, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was not a victim, he was not weak, he was a willing and an informed volunteer. He knew what he was doing. He came to save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How perfect and good and holy and righteous and awesome is Jesus? And what is the love that's shared between Jesus and the Father? It's beyond imagination, but it's yours. Are you a Christian? It's yours. Are you not a Christian? It could be yours today in a moment. Before I'm done talking, you can repent of your sins and confess to Jesus and you don't have to have everything figured out. Nobody ever does. But his grace is so rich and it's so potent and powerful, it's effective immediately, forever. Sins washed away. As far as the east is from the west, Psalms 103 says, he removes our transgressions from us. He who knew no sin became it. The sins of the world were put onto him so that they could be taken off of you. And he did it out of love. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Hebrews 12 too, it's incredible. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. What do, you, what do you get a guy who has everything? I used to run into this problem every Christmas with my dad. What do you get a guy who either has it or can make it at the half a price that you could buy it? I don't know. I got him a lot of baked goods. For the joy set before him. What could God possibly have before him that he couldn't just take by force? your soul, your affection, your love. You didn't meet the standard. You had to be made righteous. You had to be made holy. You needed an alien righteousness given to you that is not your own, but as if it is like your own. It's a gift. He gave his righteousness to you. He became a curse for us. And so finally this, if you're 
If you're in the middle of some sort of mayhem right now, the last two minutes I have here, anybody could have looked at Jesus up on the cross. If I had another 20 minutes, so we could go into it in detail. Anybody could have looked at Jesus' mutilated body on the cross and gone, this shouldn't have happened. How could this happen? What good could possibly come from this? What a tragedy, what a waste, what a failure. A dead carpenter on a cross. He was a nice guy, but now he's a dead guy. So what? You could have looked at Jesus on the cross, and many did, and been undone, confused. What good could possibly come from this? The men in David's cave seem to be done for. They're distressed, they're in debt, they're broken, they're discontented, but the Lord was just beginning with them. Their stories in, in, in a very real way were just beginning and they would go on later in scripture to become David's mighty men under his protection and under his training. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men and women to myself. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all who are thirsty, come. Whosoever believes, come. All who are weary and heavy laden, come, come, come. If you're willing to admit that you're in distress and in debt and discontented, Jesus says, come, come. What good could come from the cross? An invitation into eternity. Peace, the kingdom of God, unadulterated, forever with a seat reserved for you under the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses that speaks of this is in Colossians chapter one, starting in verse 22. It says, you, that's me and you, you who are alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And then these two little words, in order. That's, that's, that's the causal, right? Why? He reconciled in his flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. What good came from the cross? Well, God's righteousness, his righteous punishment of sin, that was satisfied. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, all of the predictions of the, of the white throne judgment, the judgment that will come when Jesus comes back, not as a carpenter, but as a king, that judgment, you won't be there because Christ took it on your behalf at Calgary, on Golgotha, 2,000 plus years ago to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If you're a Christian here this morning, that is who you are, believe it. Not because I said it, but because God said it. He wrote it down and he gave it to us as a gift. Holy and blameless and above reproach. I mean, you start thinking about that, you could choke on it. I'll close with this. The cross of Jesus Christ presents a way, the only way, for sin to be forgiven, for an almighty, righteous, perfect, eternal God far beyond our comprehension to welcome us into his heaven forever. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice. He was the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He rose again from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is and that his sacrifice satisfied God's justice and the gift is eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ, for all who would believe. The book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, I promise this will just be a minute. The first three chapters, Paul is trying to implore the church at Ephesus. If you're a Christian, then you have to understand how good you've got it. You've got to understand the blessings of Christ. You've got to understand the hope that we have in Christ. You have to understand the security that you have in Christ. However bad things seem right now, there is a hope for you that is absolutely immutable. And Paul wrote that letter from prison. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he starts the sentence off, I, Paul, the prisoner. And he was able to write like that. Listen to this prayer in Ephesians 3.14 and take this with you and start your new year based on this. Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ever ask or can even think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. So powerful was Jesus' blood that for all generations, that includes you, his salvation through faith, not works, is available. His blood is that powerful, his kingdom is that immutable, and the effect is that real. But we have to be reminded of it. And I just wanna say one last time, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in this Jesus, Jesus, and I say this Jesus because people spout off about all sorts of different Jesuses that they make up. The biblical Jesus, God in the flesh who came to die for your sins, repent and believe in him today. He rose from the dead and he is saying, come, come for all of eternity. And the caves that we end up in along the way, he's there with us too. And we're there with each other. I know there's people in this church who feel like they're stuck in a cave, but we're together and we have the hope of everything that Jesus promises us ahead of us. Amen? Amen. Happy New Year. Jesus Christ, thank you for your love. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for your patience and for your long suffering. Thank you for a love that's so powerful that it didn't stop at beatings, it didn't stop at mockings, it didn't stop at jeerings, it didn't stop at mutilation, it didn't even stop all the way up to death. Jesus, you made it to the cross and then you stayed there. And so you cried out, it is finished. And so I pray for every heart this morning that needs saving, repentant faith in you, Lord, that you would draw them in, that nobody here this morning would ignore you pulling on their heartstrings. Today is the day of salvation, Lord. And for those here this morning who are your saints, I pray for a time of refreshment. I pray for a time of reminding that they would realize that everything that is needed to get through this life, to serve you and to preach the gospel and to be your workers is available to us. We just often don't know it. So help us to know more and more abundantly and with greater depth what it is you have provided for us sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. May we lift our voices in worship. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Be with us for this next 365 days. Lord, thank you for another year. In your name, amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.